Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome to our wonderful listeners. So today on the episode, we are going to be talking about endometriosis and menstrual pain. My guest today is Dr. Allison Shrikande. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Madeline. I, I'm really excited to uh, dive into this topic and, you know, learn from you as well as, uh, you know, get the message out there to these uh, women, um, you know, what's kind of going on with their bodies. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Excited to be here. So I thought the best place for us to start is maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So... My name is Dr. Allison Shrikande. I am a physiatrist, uh, or otherwise known as a rehabilitation medicine doctor. And my husband and I co-founded Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine in May of 2017 to really help treat men and women who are suffering from pelvic pain. Uh, really, I had uh, my own issues postpartum after my first child when I was in residency, and uh, that's what really drove my passion for pelvic pain, pelvic health, and really everything about the pelvic floor. Amazing. Um, so my question, because, you know, uh, you're in the U.S., correct? Yes. Yeah. So here in Canada, I, I, I'm... I'm going to say I'm not as familiar with like the sort of terminology or like the sort of background in medicine. Can you maybe describe like what a physiatrist or a physical rehabilitation doctor kind of does? Definitely. So, yeah, so we are really an extension of a pelvic floor physical therapist. We are MDs or DOs, so we did go to medical school and then it's a residency, it's a specialty after medical school to train to be a physiatrist or physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor. And really what we do is we treat the muscles, nerves, and joints of the pelvis non-operatively. So it's outpatient neuromuscular medicine. And the protocol that we have is, is external ultrasound guided nerve blocks and trigger points, uh, similar almost like going to the dentist. <laughs> you see us and then you go on with your day. Um, really to treat patients who really are trying to avoid some sort of procedure or surgery. Right. Uh, so you do some, you know, you're saying external treatments, but are you, do you guys do medications as well? Or is it mostly like focused yes. on like physical rehab? No, that's a great question. No. So we really look at the, the patient as a whole and uh, we will, we, we think of ourselves almost as detectives, as physicians who are detectives trying to figure out, What's going on and trying to understand the primary pain generator. Um, so we do a, a 
you know, classic history, uh, physical examination, uh, looking at patients' lumbar sacral spine, their hips. We look at their abdomen. Um, and also we evaluate the pelvic floor internally as well. Um, so we do a classic physician history and examination. We get imaging where needed. If we feel we need ultrasounds or an MRI of the pelvis, we'll do that. And then, of course, we can do medications, the classic medications in our world. So it's a non-opioid approach. So the medications we use, we use suppositories quite often because the problem really is the pelvic floor. So the suppositories are the best way to get directly to the problem. So we'll use sometimes a muscle relaxants in our suppositories to help kind of relax those muscles that are short, spastic, and weaker. Um, or we can put um, NSAIDs in our suppositories. So we'll do some suppositories, and then we do oral medications as well. Those would be something called CNS neuromodulator medications. So medications that are actually treatment of a hyperactive nervous system. So essentially, these central nervous system neuromodulating medications really just calm down or chill out the peripheral nociceptors and desensitize them. So they really do help patients um, break that pain cycle. And the data says usually three to six months, um, typically on these medications. Uh, so those were what we would use. Sometimes we use antihistamines as well, that there is some data that this pelvic pain can be related to. Uh, uh, mast cell release of histamine. So sometimes we'll just give out a basic antihistamine. But yeah, we do use medications and then we also then make a treatment plan, a whole body approach treatment plan um, where we're treating basically the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system and the muscles and the nerves. And we talk about diet, nutrition, exercise, everything with the patient. So that's kind of the soup to nuts of how we would approach the problem. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I think that kind of just helps people sort of build a, a context in their mind of like, okay, if I'm seeing this type of a physician, like what can I expect um, in terms of like what might be included in a treatment plan? Okay, so let's let's talk about, you know, um, you know, menstrual pain and endometriosis. Um, and I kind of had a question that just literally popped into my mind before I before we launched this podcast. And I'm really curious, and I'm certain that other women are curious, is all menstrual pain related to endo? No, definitely not. That menstrual pain is a very is a vast um area and there are multiple reasons to have it and other ones sometimes it's something called uh, fibroids or um, there can be different types of ovarian cysts or adenomyosis is another option but there are multiple reasons to have that menstrual pain so no it is not all endometriosis for sure okay I just wanted to kind of first start off uh, you know the context that it, it doesn't always mean it's uh uh, endometriosis because you know people go on the internet and they search and you know maybe suspecting that uh, you know this is this is the problem but I wanted to just highlight that there could be other reasons uh, that there's menstrual pain but for the purpose of today's topic we're gonna kind of hone in on uh, endometriosis uh, specifically um, I guess maybe I'll ask what how do you define endometriosis so endometriosis is defined as the cells uh, of the endometrial layer in the uterus are found outside of the uterus. So they're outside where they're supposed to be. Okay. How prevalent is endometriosis? 
So it's one in 10 women, or what most studies say, one in 10 women. There was one recent study out of Australia that went as far as to say one in nine women. Um, so that's pretty that's, it's prevalent. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Um, what, what sort of age group do symptoms typically begin to show up? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it's, it, it can show up when you're at age of your first period. So really, depending on the age that a patient would have their period. So it, as early as, you know, 14, 15, 16. Um, and then it, it could show up later as well. Um, sometimes what's challenging about it is patients are started on, uh, we call hormonal suppression, so oral birth control. Um, so you know, they may have not feel symptoms until they come off the birth control. So, but typically it would come with your period, your first period. Gotcha. Okay. What, um, what are some of the symptoms your clients, you know, most commonly report that b makes you think or suspect that it may be endometriosis? Yeah, some classic ones are pain with intercourse, discomfort with intercourse, or even more common is a soreness post-intercourse. Um, we heard that a lot. Um, a, a discomfort with tampon use, so a lot of our patients don't like to use tampons, um, is common, um, as well as bladder issues. So sensation of a UTI, but the urinalysis and culture was negative, or you had a UTI that never went away, I hear that a lot. Um, urinary urgency frequency, so you pee a lot, or burning with urination can come with endometriosis, um, as well as quite a bit of GI and bowel complaints, so a lot of constipation, chronic straining on the toilet, pain or discomfort with bowel movement, um, abdominal bloating, we call it endo belly, so quite a bit of uh, bloating, and quite a, a few of our patients come with, you know, a normal GI workup with the diagnosis quite often of IBS, irritable mm -hmm. bowel syndrome, or IBSC, constipation-based IBS is, you know, just because we sometimes in the medical community we didn't know what was going on, so a lot of times it's that IBS constipation that you'll see. Um, yeah, so those are probably the most common. Um, it can be cyclical where it's worse during your period or before or after, but it doesn't have to be. Sometimes it is not related to the menstrual cycle, really. Um, or sometimes by the, by the time they get to us, it's, you know, it's quite often, um, you know, throughout the, the, the cycle. So it really does, that is one myth. People think, oh, I thought it wasn't endo because, you know, I only have pain, I have pain not correlating with my, menstrual cycle or my period but that you know that is not true it, it really can come at any time okay. and just to clarify age of onset it, you know can come 20s 30s really uh, as early as 14 but really 20s 30s and 40s would be the majority of our patients they're in 20s 30s and 40s who would come to see us with those symptoms those would be what they'd be complaining of and classically it can be worse with a lot of sitting prolonged sitting at work can make everything a bit worse okay that's that's a very comprehensive, uh, uh, you know, list. But but I think it's important because you know when I think back to sort of learning about endometriosis at the beginning, it was sort of the context it set out to me was 
Um, you know, usually the first two to three days of the period are excruciating pain where they're, you know, missing school and day-to-day -day activities. Um, and, and then it would be, and then it would get better. Uh, so I always kind of had it in my mind that this is like, okay, it's, it's definitely like related to the period. It's usually the first couple days. And like, that's what would make me think endometriosis. But what you're saying is like, there could be all of these other, um, symptoms associated with it yes definitely it's we classic kind of pelvic floor sl sling of bowel bladder and intercourse and yes for sh we do always ask are you missing school work or social events clearly that's very um, important to know and it is common in in the, our patient population who have endometriosis um, another thing to note is family history but that can be a challenge because it's such a private topic that you know you don't always know did your mom or your aunt have a hysterectomy for this reason, uh, but it is that is important to always ask patients. And as a patient, just make sure you tell your healthcare provider um, if you do have any sort of family history of it, because there is a strong genetic uh, predisposition. Gotcha. Let's talk about diagnosis because um, you know we we were both uh, well the last um you know international pelvic pain society annual conference was like a, was very heavy on endometriosis and diagnosis and like i just you know why is it so hard to diagnose because we spent a lot of time talking about it takes so long to get a diagnosis and what do we do with these women in the meantime you know right yes i know it's so essentially why it's a challenge is quite often the workup is normal, right? So the blood work is normal, ultrasounds are normal, MRIs of the pelvis are quite often normal. Um, so, you know, not always, but quite often they are. So that's when, you know, the diagnosis is extremely delayed or um, you went to your GI doctor with these bloating bowel complaints and you did, you had a upper or and or lower endoscopy or colonoscopy which again was normal so that's that is the delay we just don't have a proper diag diagnostic and at this point really it is sending patients for surgery for diagnostic um, lab to really take go in and take a look um, and take some pathology to send um, to confirm the diagnosis of endometriosis so that is the challenge really we need really need to find a, a better diagnostic tool for our patients so they don't suffer for eight to 10 years, which at this time is the average um, time to diagnosis. And I imagine, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, this sort of showing up at the first menstrual cycle, in all likelihood, um, you, the reason it's probably coming clear on MRIs is I imagine that the body hasn't really, you know, there's no scarring yet at that moment developed because it's just kind of the onset so it might not show up or does endometriosis is it already doing its th you know its thing prior to the first menstrual cycle yeah i am um, you're saying you know after someone's had their first menstrual cycle the the first one yeah so i'm saying eight years to diagnosis like i mean I would think that it takes time to sort of accumulate scar tissue that would then possibly show up on MRI. 100%. So, what we, so something called deep infiltrating endometriosis um, has a higher likelihood of showing up on an MRI for the reasons you said, because it's sort of, it is part of the 
understanding currently of the pathophysiology it's an inflammation and then scarring and then inflammation again and then scarring mm -hmm. so so yes that that is um part of why you know it takes so long um but yeah the the deep infiltrating endometriosis does have a higher likelihood of showing up um, compared to the others so it's, it's gone through multiple rounds of inflammation and, and scarring mm -hmm. so but that is that is that is correct um, and the thing is it, it's very different in every patient so the extent of the endometriosis is is different in every patient as well as the location um, that is what's challenging it, you know it can travel even outside of the pelvis. So um, that, that, that's, that can be the challenge because you really have to know where to look. Um, and the radiologist has to be very familiar with endometriosis and know exactly what areas to really take a look at, the common kind of pockets that it can hide in. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that, that is why that can be a challenge. Um, and I assume not everybody's, you know, once you've had like all of the external diagnosis, right? Like the idea of, you know, sur a surgery to, you know, go in there, not everybody wants to have that. So uh, that I assume can be kind of a barrier to making that diagnosis as well. Yes, that's exactly right. A lot of patients are, you know, as understandably adverse to surgery. So, so quite often it, it, it may go un undiagnosed. Um, so, you know, if they don't have any of the symptoms that we had talked about earlier and or family history, another common uh, thing to ask about is infertility um, is very common in the endometriosis population. So that can kind of be a hint as well if there's been any issues with with fertility and or we autoimmune diseases. There is a strong correlation of having endo and having other autoimmune diseases such as Hashimoto's, thyroiditis. So we always ask patients about other autoimmune issues um, that can kind of help us put the puzzle together clinically so that we really have a high, high suspicion before sending someone for a diagnostic lab. Yeah. So, um, okay, so you said like deep infiltrating endometriosis and then other types. Can you maybe clarify, you know, what, what types of endometriosis there might be? Sure. I mean, for, for staging of endometriosis, really um, it's staged by how far it goes away from the pelvis. That's how I would oh, say okay. it. So one through four. Um, and when, you know, it's found in the higher stages is when it's left the pelvis. So it can go to the, I've seen patients present with actually collapsed lung. You can get atelectasis. Um, so if it, if it leaves, you know, the, the further it goes from the pelvis is how they stage it. Um, or is it right outside the uterus in the rectovaginal sac? So that is, but, there, but honestly, a lot of the data says that the symptoms don't always correlate with the, the staging. So uh, that's why it's, you know, we don't always say stage three. So, so because it, honestly, sometimes you can have severe pain with, with, with very little endometriosis, which is why we do think there may be a strong component of patients own central nervous system, central sensitivity, um, that can kind of upregulate their symptoms. So okay. there is not a, a direct correlation with the extent of endometriosis and your extent of your symptoms. Mm hmm. So can you maybe just kind of, um, you know, briefly on a very like simplified way, kind of just say, talk about kind of the pathophysiology, like what's kind of happening. So you have these uterine cells that are outside of the uterus and 
you know, they obviously expand. Right. Right. Yes. And, you know, in the medical community, there is not a consensus on, honestly, on understanding it completely. So there's different okay. theories. Okay. Retrograde menstruation is one theory. So I don't know if anyone could 100% explain it, actually, um, because there is some differing as to how it happens, um, different thought processes. Um, but what we do know is that it is a pro-inflammatory state. So okay. it releases these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is what our protocol is trying to kind of fight and, 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 and counteract by decreasing this neurogenic inflammation. Um, we also do know it's an estrogen-dependent disease process. So that is why quite often um, patients are put on some options for hormonal treatment too. So it's, it is a complicated disease process, but it is estrogen dependent. So by theoretically suppressing that estrogen, it can suppress the, um, the disease uh, growth rate. Okay. But then there are side effects to that as well, right? So, so it is a very complicated disease process. So it's, it, there's a hormonal component. There is a nerve component, right? Both peripheral and central sensitization do happen, and it is a pro, pro-inflammatory state. So we do know those things. Um, and we do know there is a genetic component because we do see it over and over again. The data is there um, that, you know, if you have a family history or a mom to, to daughter passing it or grandma to, to grandchild. So we do know there is a genetic component, but we do also think there may be some sort of autoimmune component, which is why we do aspects and we see quite a bit of crossover and correlation with endometriosis with other autoimmune <laughs> diseases. Um, and we do know the, uh, quite a few in this, in this data, and the data over you know, 80% have concomitant hypertonic pelvic floor and pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Um, and so we do know that there usually is a muscle component too. So that is why in, when we treat patients, we're treating the muscles, we're treating the nerves, we're treating the um, basically as we mindfulness CBT to calm down the central nervous system with medications, and sometimes acupuncture can help with that too. But the way we approach it is kind of we want to help the muscles, we want to help the peripheral nerves with our protocol as well as the central nervous system, and those three seem to work really well for symptoms. And it is important to get a diagnosis um, uh, if if possible. It, it is helpful to have some sort of diagnosis and an excision surgery. Some patients do go for the excision surgery to have it properly excised and removed from the body, remove that pro-inflammatory state. Right. Mm-hmm. Can you? Sort of just uh, talk a little bit more about the connection to. Um, we'll, we'll start with the pelvic floor. So, you know, my thought, you know, the way that I'm understanding is, you know, our response to pain oftentimes, our, our initial response is to kind of tense our tense our body, kind of hold our breath, and just wait for that kind of pain to sort of pass through. Um, and I imagine that if you're kind of going over this you know, you're feeling these discomfort and sensations over and over, eventually your pelvic floor is just going to stay fairly tight. Like that's kind of in a most simplified way, the way I think about it, but I'm curious how you sort of explain the connection to patients. You're completely right. You're completely right. So yeah, I mean, with, with the connection, so endometriosis is found in these little crevets that hide above the pelvic floor sling. So the pelvic floor muscles essentially just are not happy with its presence, exactly what you're saying. They don't like it there. So when you don't like something, you go into this 
guard, we call it a chronic guarding state, um, which really happens all over the body. So if you have an injury in your back or your neck, if you have it, your muscles around there go into spasm, and it's actually your body's way to protect it itself. It's a protective mechanism. However, it just when it goes on for too long and becomes chronic, then that's when all the problems start to happen. So the acute phase of that guarding is okay, but anything more than six weeks, it's, it becomes problematic. And that's what happens. It's this chronic tensing of the pelvic floor because it's just not happy with the presence of the endometriosis. And then when it's in that short, spastic, weak, contracted state, that's downward. That's when the downward spiral, spiral starts to happen, really. Essentially, there's just not enough blood flow in there to those local nerves. And nerves love blood flow because it provides oxygen. So that will have this whole downstream effect on stimulating the inflammatory cascade. In addition to endometriosis releasing these pro-inflammatory cytokines, the pelvic floor in and of itself will start to have these pro-inflammatory cytokines as well because there's just not enough local blood flow when it's in that constricted state. Um, so that, and also weakness. So when, when you're short, spastic, and weak, you're not supporting your lumbar sacral spine, and you're really not supporting your hips that well, um, and as well as the different joints of the pelvis. And that's when people's mechanics start to be altered. And with these altered mechanics, sometimes you can downstream, you can get these injuries. And it's common to have impingement syndromes of the hip with labral tears, um, sacroiliac joint dysfunction. So it all is really connected and tied together. But it's, you know, it starts with some sort of pelvic floor hypertonia, but over months to years, you get these dysfunction in, in your musculoskeletal system, as well as the peripheral nerves. So it takes time. This is a process that takes, takes time and doesn't happen overnight. So it also can take some time to get better too because, of the, because it was there for so long. We're, conceptually, what we're doing is like you're t treating patients almost like an iPhone, re rebooting you, <laughs> turning you off and on. So we're, we're trying to reset and retrain. We're not really trying to just make you feel better for a half hour. We're trying to desensitize, reset, and retrain the muscles and nerves and how the muscles and nerves talk to one another. Absolutely. Ken, so we've talked about obviously peripheral nerves being impacted by a tight pelvic floor. Cha also changes in mechanics can certainly put pressure on, on, the, on the nerves as well. Let's mm -hmm. talk about sensitization because this was a, you know, this, this is definitely a big topic. Uh, you know, especially at the annual conference was like, you know, um, the quicker that we can, you know, get treatment going and, and, and helping to prevent women from getting into this chronic state um, may impact sensitization, right? So if you're kind of, if your system's getting the messages over and over, it kind of gets better at processing those signals, right? So yeah. I, I want to kind of um, sort of just hear um, how you sort of conceptualize and, and explain sensitization to your clients. Yeah, sure. So technically, our body's nervous system, what's really cool about it, it's something called neuroplasticity, where you know, our body can change, uh, the pendulum can change in good or bad ways, but it, it, the nervous system can change. So um, in rehab doctors, we're very used to this. So if someone has a stroke, post-stroke, our whole job is to get them, you know, using their right arm again, right? Picking up that cup of coffee because it, things can change. Um, so similar here in chronic pain states, if the nerves are exposed to 
this pro-inflammatory state, then they'll start to change in a way where they become um, hyperactive and they fire when they shouldn't fire. That's what happens. We call it aberrant firing, but they fire too easily. So it's almost, I describe it as nerves with ADHD. So they're firing when they shouldn't fire. And that's what causes these symptoms of, um, of extreme pain, uh, things that, should, that don't normally cause pain, like touching you gently with a cotton swab on your abdomen. That can really hurt. But it's because they're firing inappropriately because of this exposure, repetitive exposure to inflammation. Um, and then that, that, that process becomes your new normal. So that's how your nerves start to function um, after this exposure to this inflammation around the nerves. So it's not, and it's important to note that, you know, you're saying, you know, a cotton swab touching the, touching the abdominal wall causes a lot of pain. Um, you know, I think it's important to state that like there is no actual tissue damage occurring, right? Like technically it's not, um, you know, creating, a, it's not a dangerous sensation, but your body is interpreting uh, it as a danger yeah. message. And so it could be super scary because it's like, okay, this doesn't really make sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, with endo, the way I kind of explain it is there's three, three main reasons. Your, your endometriosis could be directly invading a nerve, honestly. Not that common, but that can happen. Um, also, your endometriosis could just, your pain could be secondary to pelvic floor spasm, right? The pelvic floor squeezing the nerves and decreasing blood flow to the nerves. Or it could be pain around the nerve from just the inflammation released from the endometriosis itself. Those are really the three reasons you could have this nerve pain. Um, so the only one is when it's directly invading the nerve, then, then yes, that, that really could be real nerve injury. Yes. The least, that's the least common of the three. The other two are much more common. And you're right, it is, it's, there's no real injury occurring. It's, it's just this inappropriate firing that is occurring. So, and it, and then it can be very scary for patients. Um, and, uh, so it is, it is possible to kind of turn that clock to the point where you don't have that inflammation to treat the pelvic floor and decrease all that spasm and tension around the nerve so that they can, they can start to fire appropriately again. Absolutely. And on the topic uh, of, of sort of nerve sensitivity, I thought we could talk a little bit about organ crosstalk because oftentimes, you know, when clients are coming in to my office, it, it usually it's not just, you know, a diagnosis of endo. There's usually like, you know, either, um, you know, IBS or, um, you know, chronic fatigue or some other sort of um, thing happening. So it's not just pain in one place, but uh, and even you said it, like urgency, frequency, changes in bowel, you know. Right. How do, so can you talk about how organ crosstalk, how, how do you conceptualize and explain that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It, so through the spinal cord, the different organs can talk to each other. So the bladder can talk to the bowels or talk to the uterus. Um, through the, it's through the spinal cord. It, the bladder can send a signal to the spinal cord. The spinal cord then sends it right back to the uterus. So they're interconnected, these interconnecting neurons. But not just the organs, actually. They can, the uterus can then talk to the pelvic floor muscles or can talk to the, the surrounding fascia as well. So it's not just organ to organ. It can be organ to muscle or fascia. 
Um, but yeah, it's really, it's through that spinal cord, those connections, so that we, we say they upregulate one another. So if, you know, the bladder is upregulated, um, it can talk to the bowels and then upregulate the bowels over time. So, you know, they all are very closely connected and they're really best friends there in that pelvis. And that's what pelvic or, or that's what cross sensitization is, the, the, the talking or con interconnections through that spinal cord, um, where the nerves kind of, we call it the afferent nerves, go to the spinal cord and then the efferent nerves come on out and, and then connect it all together. If someone suspects they have endometriosis, you know, what, what should they do? I mean, if it's eight to 10 years to diagnosis, I mean, how can, you know, what, what can we do to help people, you know, not get into these chronic states? Like, do we have to have that diagnosis to begin to treat? Like, how do you, how do you begin to provide care for somebody without diagnosis? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, so what we do in our at pelvic rehabilitation medicine, um, so we really, if we, the classic patient that comes in, the, the, uh, the presenting symptoms, pain with intercourse, et cetera, are the same as, as endo. So we, you know, we are used to seeing those, those patients. What we do is we treat them with our protocol that's non-operative. We, we send them the pelvic floor physical therapy. We give them suppositories if we feel they have concomitant hypertonic pelvic floors. And we do our, our trigger points in nerve block series and sometimes add a neuromodulator. Um, and, then, and then at six-week follow-up, um, it takes about six weeks. We treat them once a week for six weeks, and they see physical therapy as well at the same time. And then there's about six weeks where we don't see them, and they go to PT only. Um, and then at that six-week follow-up, if they're better, then we leave them. Then we give them a, a, a home yoga. We usually use Your Pace Yoga by Dusty Ann Miller because conceptually what she's doing in her program is exactly what we're trying to do. Keep that pelvis open, right? But strong, long, lean, and strong and supporting the hips. Um, and so we say, this is the yoga program we recommend for you. Um, at this point, we, we, you're a lot better. We'll transition. You don't need your suppositories now every night. You can just keep them in the fridge for when you're really having a bad day. Um, and we'll see you in three months. You know, so we just, we actually just let them, let them be. If, ever, if a patient responds nicely and they let go and then we, we, we do, we say, you know what, this is working. Let's, let's just keep going. Let's talk, continue that anti-inflammatory diet and continue your public floor um, home program and, or maybe maintenance therapy de depending on the severity. So that's what we do first. We, we try it. Um, and then it, if they're better, we leave them. If they're not, then we would, we would say, okay, this is an endometriosis gynecologic specialist that we do think, you know, you should see. But either way, you know, it's either you can avoid the surgery altogether, which is, which, which can be nice. Or if you are going for surgery, you know, we call it prehab. It's a prehab concept that we're trying to get out there where we're really wrapping you up in a nice bow. We're presenting you for surgery so that if you do have a surgery, you, you shouldn't flare, you know, you should really feel, you should feel better. Um, Cause sometimes patients, if you go into surgery, you have extreme uh, spasm in your pelvic floor. Your nerves are very, very sensitive and inflamed. A surgery could flare you. So conceptually, we feel it's a win-win because either you're avoiding it or if you do have it, you're going to respond much better to surgery. You should need, need less pain meds afterwards. You should, be, you should get back to your regular activities faster. So it's that prehab concept that we are really trying to get out there in the country because you know, we do it for knee surgery, we do it for, for back surgery all the time. It's just for 
pelvic surgery, it's a little bit of a outside of the box thought process, but, but it makes sense. So we're trying, that's what we do. And, and that makes a lot of uh, sense to me in, you know, thinking about setting up the client for success, right? Getting them understanding their body better, understanding what pain is, um, you know, things that they could be doing that are going to even, you know, aid their recovery, right? Getting on a better diet, you know, quitting smoking or, you know, making these lifestyle changes are going to make the recovery process so much easier too. Completely, completely agree. Um, completely agree. Yeah. So I, I so I, and the key is it's all about as rehab docs function. We're not really pain doctors. We're, we really want you to be going to work. We want you to be having intercourse and, and enjoying life, quality of life and function are really what we are about. So I, I do feel, um, yeah, I think patients definitely will have better quality of life and function post-operatively if, you know, if we treat them before surgery. So that's, that's really what we're trying to do. Um, you know, we, our patients are athletes. We want to get you, we want to keep you moving and we want to get you enjoying what you like to do again, really, whatever it is, yoga, swimming, whatever it is you like to do. Exactly. And, I, you know, and, and having, you know, the PT along um, with your protocol, um, I think is, is a great, like they're getting the pieces that they need in-house. And I think that's awesome to hear. Um, <laughs> is there any, so you have a particular protocol that you use um, in your yes. office, a PRM protocol. Is that what you described earlier about, uh, you know, looking at the diet and starting with suppositories? And um, is there anything part, anything that was missing in that protocol? Yeah, yeah essentially the protocol is, uh, really what we do is pelvic floor physical therapy um, for six to eight weeks is the, where patients start. And then they follow up if they hadn't tried it. Um, and then if, if you know, our protocol was created if patients either plateaued with pelvic floor PT or didn't respond as much as they would have liked, which can happen in this world, right? So PT, pelvic floor PT got you 50% better, but you're looking to get clearly 100% or even a little more. That's when we would initiate it. Again, we do it. what we do is external ultrasound guided uh, trigger points and nerve blocks. So it's really, my patients describe it as almost butt injection. So it is under an ultrasound and it's external. Um, the needle is 27 gauge, so it's very small. And patients will see us in the morning at 8.30 and then go to their 9.30 meeting at work. You know, you go on with your day. Um, but it's a process, it's a trip around the pelvis, we describe it, so it's very subtle. We, you know, it's big, so we treat one area at a time, front and back, um, and then they really do physical therapy the same week is very important um, to, to do the physical therapy with it. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, that is what we're, we do. Um, sorry. And then we also really talk at the same time, have everybody meditating. So we, we have mindfulness meditation um, with the medications. That's kind of the, the protocol. And then for diet, we usually, we talk about the anti-inflammatory diet with our patients. So amazing. So, you know, holistic, um, you know, multidisciplinary and, uh, you know, approach to pain and yeah, healing yeah, and, and function, returning back to function. Um, so if conservative management, so if all of that, you know, doesn't work and, you know, a patient has to go in for surgery. Is there, uh, I know for endometriosis, there's like a, a ablation 
or excision? Is there one that's showing better outcomes? Yes. I mean, that is an important um, question for patients to ask their surgeon. So the excision surgery essentially versus an ablation, the difference is the ablation, they're burning it. And the excision, they are actually removing the cells underneath. Um, So technically, the excision surgery does have um, better uh, data on uh, less recurrence. I mean, there is recurrence in endometriosis, even with the highest level surgeons, honestly. The average recurrence, they say, is about um, uh, 10%. So, so you can have recurrence, but the excision surgery is better the, versus an ablation in terms of really getting underneath the cells um, and hopefully having them not regrow. Perfect. Yeah, I thought it might be important just to sort of let people know their their uh, surgical options. If people are, you know, looking for a different approach, um, or you know, are resonating with um, your sort of protocol and thought process, like where can people where can people find you? Sure. So it's Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine, and we're on Instagram, Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine, as well as Facebook. Um, or you could Google Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine and our website. You could There's a contact. You just click on it, and you can sh- shoot us an email. So th- that would be the three best ways, Pelvic Rehabilitation Medicine. You can find us all over social media, Twitter as well. Excellent. Do you take uh, do you take international or you know outside of the U.S. clients, or is it typically U.S. clients? No, we do actually. Yes, we've seen patients from you know Japan and uh, India, London, all over Europe, and several from Canada, mostly Toronto. But oh. I, have, I have a couple of patients up in Canada. Awesome. So. I figured I'd just clarify, you know, in case somebody's like, yes, but I'm not in the U.S. Can I, can I go? So I just wanted to let them know that uh, if yeah. that's a possibility. And we um, are doing telehealth as well. So a lot of times patients who are coming from a distance, the first time will be do a telehealth so that we can see what we can do before you fly to us for treatment. Oh, that's amazing to know because, you know, I think, you know, that consultation is certainly uh, important before you're spending the money to hop on a plane to make sure it's a good fit, right? A hundred percent. And also to make sure, yeah, we we feel confident we could even, we could help you. So it's great. We can start you on some suppositories and make sure you get your PT going. So we can do a lot through telehealth um, before coming. So that's been fantastic for our patients. Awesome. My final question to you is, can you tell us about the ROSE project? Sure. So ROSE stands for Research Outsmarts Endometriosis. And essentially, um, we are working closely with brilliant geneticists, uh, Dr. Gregerson and Dr. Metz, through the Feinstein Medical Institute, who have a passion for endometriosis. And what we're, we're trying to do is find a diagnostic via studying the menstrual effluent. So we're studying um, the menstrual effluent by giving patients who are willing to help us, kindly help us, um, we're, we're giving them a pad overnight to collect their blood. And then um, they put it, the kit comes in the mail, and then you put it in the kit, you mail it back, and we're analyzing the biomarkers in the menstrual effluent to see normal controls versus endometriosis. Now, 
it can be patients who have a known diagnosis of endometriosis, or it could be a normal control, or it could be someone who's on their way to considering getting a, a diagnostic lab. So really anyone can participate, anyone who really wants to help forward this field and help patients who really have been ignored for many years. And uh, can anybody uh, participate in the study or is it just the uh, U.S.? No, anyone, actually. There were, yeah, we actually have had a couple of people from Canada. Really, it can be anyone, anyone in the world. So we really would appreciate any, any help. And um, the link is on our website. It's all done um, online. The consent, everything's online. And they will mail you a kit from the Feinstein Medical Institute in New York, Long Island, New York. And once it's completed, actually, patients get a $50 gift card after it's done for helping. I'm going to summarize because something with your microphone, you went really quiet. Uh, so um, if, I, if I heard this correctly, uh, patients can go to the website um, and there's a link or a tab for the Rose Project. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, okay. it's, on, it's on our website. There's a link for Rose and you click on it and it will tell you how to help, help participate. It is all done online. Perfect. And, and Participants do receive, when it's done, $50 gift card. Excellent. Yes, I was going to ask you to, to repeat that now that I can hear you much better. So, um, and of course, the kits will be mailed uh, to, to, the client, uh, to the participant uh, and are all done from the comfort of their own home. Exactly. It's all done. The posting is taken care of, the postage. So really, you, just, you sign up, you complete the consent, and the, the kit will be mailed to you. Wonderful. Thank you. And, and for our listeners, we will be posting the links to the social medias and to the website and to the Rose Project if you're uh, interested in participating. Um, and, uh, you know, who, who couldn't use an extra 50 bucks? I mean, this could really, really help things move forward uh, in, in terms of really trying to understand and find a better way to diagnose as, you were, as we've been talking about, right? Right. It would be fantastic if someday you could say, here's a a pad, a menstrual pad, collect it, and we can tell you what if you have it or not. It's, it would be a, a really exciting day for, for medicine. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and your approach uh, with us today. Uh, I, I'm just I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me in this fantastic show. I really appreciate your time. Thank yes. you. And of course, we all always appreciate our listeners' time. And we ask, you know, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, to subscribe, uh, leave us a review, and certainly to share out this episode um, as, you know, we might get some more participants for the research study, but also just to help, uh, you know, women learn more about endometriosis. And if they suspect they have it, give them at least some idea of, um, you know, treatment approaches and where they can seek out help. So we would greatly appreciate that. And uh, we thank you and look forward to seeing you on the next show. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.